Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Eswatini, which used to be known as Swaziland, is a small country in southern Africa nestled on the border between South Africa and Mozambique. It is notably Africa's only absolute monarchy. The king effectively rules by fiat, with no meaningful checks or balances. And today, the country is in the midst of its most intense and significant protests against that monarchy in recent history. The protests began in May and accelerated in June. The monarchy's response was violent, with many protesters killed and disappeared. The internet was shut down for over a week. Today, many of the protest leaders are in hiding, even as pro-democracy protests continue. On the line with me from Harare, Zimbabwe, is journalist Mako Muzenda. We kick off with a discussion of the nature of Eswatini's monarchy before having a broader discussion about these unprecedented protests. Today's episode is supported in part through a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York as part of a series of episodes that feature African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to view other episodes in this series. As I mentioned to Mako Muzenda in this conversation, Eswatini is not a country that routinely makes major headlines, at least here in the West, but this situation unfolding in this small country is increasingly garnering international attention, and its outcome does have international implications. Anyway, I think you will appreciate this conversation. I know I did. And now here is journalist Mako Muzenda. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. King Swati III is the king of Eswatini. He was crowned in 1986, and at the time he was the youngest ruling monarch in the world. So his father was the the previous king, King Sobuza II, who, you know, in terms of the the history and politics of Eswatini and South Africa to an extent, was a very influential figure. He was very transformative in a good and bad way for the country. So Mswati inherited this, like, very particular legacy from his father when he ascended. There was a bit of drama around his 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 coronation and him becoming king. There was some infighting over who was going to succeed, but eventually he's the one who came out on top. So he's been the absolute monarch um, of Eswatini since 1986. 
the, the the image or the things most commonly associated with him, especially like in the media and stuff, is you know his his many wives. So every year in Eswatini, there's a festival that's called Umslange um, and Swati, but Reed Festival, where every year he takes a new wife. So those are the things that he's known for. Also, his very extravagant lifestyle. He spends a lot of money on himself, on his children, on his family. And that's been part of part of the reasons of the protest. Um, in terms of, you know, the country's political structure, he's the ultimate authority. So something that has that I've seen has confused a lot of people is the assumption that he's a monarch like, you know, Queen Elizabeth in the sense of a constitutional monarchy. But he's the one who's fully in control. He's the one who selects the prime minister in the country. There's no political party. There aren't any political parties in Eswatini. So ultimately, at the end of the day, he's the one in full control, politically, economically, socially, and culturally. So that's just a brief background into Swati. At this point, it's not entirely clear where he is. I mean, official uh, Swatini media and, you know, government accounts have stated that he is still in the country and is working to solve the unrest. But there have been several reports that he fled. Um, some are saying he fled to South Africa and is currently in Johannesburg. Some people are saying he fled to Zimbabwe. So it's still not entirely clear where he is. He hasn't made any kind of statement or public address since the protests happened. So that's a, that's a big question mark. How is it that uh, Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, you know, became this kind of unique country in Southern Africa, the last remaining absolute monarchy? Oh, that's a good question. And I think, you know, it's it's something that's being increasingly, you know, scrutinized with the protests that are going on. So, as I said, um, King Swati's father was Sobuza II, who was, if, if I'm not mistaken, was... Yes, he led Eswatini through to independence in 1982. So in terms of his position in the country's like uh, history and society and culture, he was very influential and he was very powerful. And I think a lot of the current situation in terms of structures and it being an absolute monarch has a lot to do with the systems that he introduced because after independence, there was the option to move away from having an absolute monarch to introduce certain reforms um, and to reduce the power of the royal family as a whole, but they didn't go that route. Mm. And I think at the time, it wasn't really, it wasn't questioned as much because of the context. So because he was a generally a popular monarch within Eswatini, he was well-liked and respected and still is to an extent today, obviously not as much as before, but also his standing in terms of um, the region and to to an extent the continent as well. He, he was also well-respected in parts of South Africa, especially in for Zulu people in South Africa because he has a connection to that group. He, he, his legacy and the way his relationship with his people worked, I think has been very influential in perpetuating that political system. And I think also 
there have also been a lot of benefactors as well. I mean, in King Swati III has a lot of children and has a lot of wives. And his father also had a lot of children and a lot of wives. So there are a lot of people who benefit from having an absolute monarchy where there aren't really any checks and balances into, you know, the state budget, how much is spent on people, and there aren't any limits on that. So there are many people in the country who may have a vested interest in the system itself continuing. And by definition, these are the more powerful people in the country. They're the ones who've benefited from the monarchy, from the patronage that all these wives and children of now two generations of, of this monarch of this monarchy have have bestowed. Yes, that's true. And, um, you know, it's funny because when the when the protests first began, there was actually a video that circulated of some of King Swati's children, you know, mocking the protesters, basically making fun of them, saying like, oh, this is silly, you know, um, mocking them and just having a, a disrespectfully lighthearted tone about what people were asking for and the grievances that people had. And that also brought into sharper focus just how many people are benefiting from the system. So what sparked this protest? I mean, there have been protests in Iswatini before, but this seems to be on a scale, unlike anything that we've ever seen. And it, it seems part of a broader trend that we're seeing around the world of of protest in the time of COVID, whether it's like Black Lives Matter or the SARS must end or the protests in Colombia. You know, we can go on and on and on. This is like it had been a, a year of, of protest. Uh, but in each context, there seems to be an aggravating incident. Uh, what happened here? Okay, so the the larger context of the protests has been growing dissatisfaction and frustration with just the sheer amount of money that um, the royal family, but King Swati in particular, is spending in a country that is very poor and underdeveloped. And it's something that has been aggravated by the pandemic. So the response to the pandemic as well. So there was already this like underlying Mm -hmm. tension. Like, why are you Um, spending money on all these Rolls Royces when, you know, people don't have food to eat? Exactly. Like it, it, it didn't make sense. And doing that in a time when people were especially vulnerable and especially uh, desperate was just a slap in the face. <laughs> so um, another issue, which which is what sparked the, the, the protest, like the the event that really sparked the protest was um, a growing frustration and just being tired of state brutality. So being attacked and beaten by the police, um, arrests that didn't make sense, bribery, corruption, and the event that that led to the to the full outburst of the protests was actually the the murder, or the suspicious death. That's what it's being called, quote unquote, suspicious death of a young student called Tabani Komonye. Um, so his death, which is at the hands of police, is what. Is, is the event that really like sparked the protests. But as they have gone on, obviously, you know, it's, it's something that I can kind of relate to because the same thing happened in, in Zimbabwe where it's like there's one event that sparks the protest, but then as it goes on, your resentment and frustration about a lot of other things add to, you know, the, the protests and it becomes an, uh, an issue 
that is not just focused on the event, but encompasses a lot of other things that people have resented for a while, but haven't had the space to really speak out against. And this includes, you know, inequality, police brutality. Do the protesters, to your knowledge right now, have a a specific list of of grievances or demands? Well, some of the, uh, I know there are some clear demands that they want. So one of the biggest, obviously, is a change to the political system. So political reforms. People want to be able to have the right to elect their prime minister because, as I said in the beginning, King Swati is the one who elects, who chooses, rather, who chooses the prime minister from um, government officials, elected government officials. They want to have the right to form political parties, to formally form political parties. There are some informal organizations. There is a communist party in Eswatini. But because, you know, political parties can't contest in elections, there's there's no real way for there to be ha- for these parties to be involved in the political system. Obviously, uh, another big thing has been um, a curb on the monarch's power and also spending as well. So a redistribution of the funds that would usually go to him and supporting his family and, you know, his extravagant lifestyle being funneled towards, you, you know, education, healthcare, developing the country and lifting people out of poverty. So those seem to be the, 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 the clear big demands that people have at this point. Uh, but they all seem premised on overthrowing or at the very least reforming uh, a system of absolute monarchy. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, is there any momentum to that end? Like, is there a chance that this monarchy might end in its present form? That's an interesting, tough question. And I would say at this point, I honestly don't know, because I think there is an agreement amongst the protesters. Like there's a general consensus that something's got to give at this point with the system. Like it cannot go on the way it currently exists, but I don't know if there is enough momentum to completely change from, I don't know, let's say an absolute monarch uh, to a Republic, for example, maybe a constitutional monarchy, but that would be pushing it also. Um, I, I think, you know, as much as, people agree that um, there has to be some kind of, you know, limitation on Swati's power. It's also important not to underestimate some of the, for lack of a better word, sentimentality or like attachment Mm. that people have to the tradition of the, of the monarchy. Mm. So it might, it might be, I don't know if, you know, the feelings of, wanting a change and reform would override that that attachment to um, tradition. Because, I mean, if you've had this system that has been all-encompassing in your country for so long and is so deeply connected to your your country's cultural, spiritual, linguistic, traditional roots, breaking that system is is going to take a lot. So yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think time will tell if if 
Mswati's reign will, will, will formally end because of this. So far, it seems that the response by the regime has been violence, you know, to use violence to suppress the protests. Uh, and it seems that they are gambling that this is a sustainable way to suppress protests and protect the regime. And it has been remarkably violent. I think one of the most unsettling things for me in, in, in their response to the protests is how eerily similar it is to the responses that some other African governments have had when, you know, there have been protests in their own countries. So, you know, it happened in Zimbabwe in 2019 and in 2018. It happened in Nigeria with NSARS. And, you know, I think that's that was the thing that unsettled me the most because it... Okay, so there's this perception that, like, you know, a lot of African leaders and political systems and parties are like dinosaurs, you know, they don't learn, they don't change, they don't evolve, like they stay the same. Um, but what we're include what what I'm increasingly seeing is, no, these systems are actually they're 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 wising up to how best to suppress or at the very least, like knock the wind out of people's resolve and morale in order to stop protests, which is exactly what um, the Swati regime is trying to do. So, you know, them not just, you know, getting armed forces out on the street and beating up protesters. And, you know, there have been reports of people being being killed and the introduction of things like curfews and the shutting down of the internet and reports that they shut down water, like they shut off the water supply as well at some point. That to me is just a sign that, first of all, their resolve to maintain power and control is something that should not be underestimated because they've clearly demonstrated that they're willing to do whatever it takes to maintain their position. But also number two, um, Again, a lot of the a lot of these people who have been disregarded or thought of as you know living in a, in the the eighties or the nineties in terms of technology and responses of wising up to how best to counter or oppress protests and citizen movements in a digital age. So it seems that if there is to be some sort of peaceful de-escalation or resolution of this conflict, whatever it may be, it will require some sort of like intermediary. Is there anyone currently playing that, that role that perhaps like an international player that's uh, trying to broker some sort of de-escalation or resolution between the regime and the protesters? At this point, no, I know SADC and the AU both issued statements that didn't like outrightly condemn um, King Swati and the, the, the Swati government. They just said, oh, you know, we are concerned with the situation in Eswatini. We hope that there is a peaceful resolution, you know, something something along those lines. So those two made statements. But in terms of anyone or any organization like stepping up to act as an intermediary, not that I've heard or seen off at this point. Um, I think it's, it's unfortunate that just going, just going back a little bit to the internet shutdown, I think it's unfortunate that one of the, the consequences of something like an internet shutdown is that 
it works <laughs> in that it can grind um, momentum, especially online to a halt because if there's no information coming out of this, no information going in if people aren't getting any updates obviously people will still show support and solidarity and you know but if there's nothing new that's coming out it's it's also easy to move on to another breaking news story which it's that's that's what i mean like i think that's that's mm. the painful thing about internet shutdown so there was i think the point where the situation was urgent enough and had enough attention to get like a, an intermediary to come on board or even by a wild stretch of the imagination, uh, SADC or the AU coming on board. I wouldn't say that window has fully closed, mm. but there's less pressure now to resolve the issue. I mean, you know, Eswatini is what, just a, probably a few hour drive from Pretoria, right? So mm-hmm. is you know, the government of South Africa playing a meaningful role here? I mean, they seem to have the most to to gain or lose in how the situation, you know, shakes out. Well, publicly, um, South Africa hasn't really taken a very active role. As the, the official South African government has not taken a very active role in um, the protest, in, you know, addressing the protests or finding a, a peaceful resolution. Um, some political parties, such as South Africa's EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, have made statements um, supporting the protesters and calling for um, political and social reforms in, in the country. But in terms of the South African government formally getting involved at this point, uh, no, there hasn't been anything to really indicate that. And I mean, you're right, it is pretty close <laughs> to South Africa. and. I think it's also at a point where South Africa as a country has its own issues to deal with. I mean, it's in the middle of a, of a third wave of the pandemic. The vaccine rollout is really slow and clunky. And um, their former president, Jacob Zuma, has, well, he's just been, gone into jail now, like I think this morning. Yeah, yeah, this happened just like a, like a like uh, an hour or two before we spoke, the former president of yeah. South Africa turned himself <laughs> to jail. So yeah, they, 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 they seem to have their, their hands full. Um, in, yeah. in the coming, you know, weeks or months, you know, are there any like inflection points you will be looking towards that will suggest to you how the situation will, will evolve? I think a big point or significant point might be if or when Kim Swati himself makes a statement, he, whether he addresses the media or he does a, um, just like a video that's uploaded online, because as I said, so far, he hasn't said a word. There has been no official word from him. So I think that will be interesting. And that will be like a, a significant um, juncture. I think, Another potential um, significant point, if it were to happen, would be some kind of intervention or harsher statement coming from SADC or the AU. I mean, again, I really do not see that happening because both of those organizations do not have a good track record of, you know, outright coming, coming out and condemning another African leader's actions. So, but if that happens, I think that could be very, very significant. That could potentially signal a shift. 
Um, and I think another thing that could that could happen that could be very significant, potentially in a bad way, is a military intervention in the country. Um, because obviously at this point, the military is siding with the government and siding with uh, King Swati III. But if at any point they decide to either get power from themselves, if they see that the government and the king's power has been weakened or to side with the protesters, that I think would actually be the biggest and most significant event if it were to happen. A potential military coup to overthrow the absolute monarch. Mm. Hmm. That I think would be, ooh, that would be big. Uh, well, Mako, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. And, uh, you know, it's increasingly on on the radar, I think, of international media. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, when they, I think they lifted the internet um, ban a few days ago, because that's when my messages to all my friends in Eswatini finally came through and they finally were able to respond. So I think now that more information is able to come out, like people are, are picking it up. Um, so hopefully there is a resolution that favors the people of the country and not just, you know, a return to normal. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mako Muzenda. That was very helpful. And it will be interesting to see how this situation evolves and whether or not there are any meaningful reforms to Eswatini's political system. And just one disclaimer that the views and opinions expressed in this episode belong solely to those of us who express them. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.